Blog Talk Radio. Hallelujah. Now, I'm describing the vision here, precious people. I was in India, in Hyderabad. And then, it was about 5.38 a.m. in the morning when the Lord came to speak with me about the coming of the Messiah. What did God the Father tell me about the coming of the Messiah? Look at this then. In that vision, I found myself looking into the sky and I saw a tremendous darkness, pitch darkness, cover the sky. And then all of a sudden, the sky opened, heaven opened into the sky. And as the glory began to descend, all of a sudden, a huge golden cloak was lowered like this, like this, like this, like this. Shaking like that, like that, like that. And then stopped into the sky. And I remember in that vision, when I looked at the face of the clock, I saw the minute hand. And then I saw the hour hand. When I looked at the minute hand and the hour hand, I saw one minute to midnight. That was the 3rd of May, 2007, in Hyderabad, India. It was one minute to midnight, 11.59 p.m. But that did not shock me. What shocked me most was when I looked at the long red second hand. And I don't know why he did that. He made it move so fast. It was moving so fast like that, you know. It was moving so fast. And he made me know it is soon going to strike midnight. And in that vision, the Lord also made me know that when it strikes midnight, the Messiah comes. That he made me know. So when he made me know that, I panicked inside that vision. When I panicked, it was the Lord that made me panic. That when I come to relate to you, I'll speak it to you and you should panic. Do you understand? So in that tremendous conversation, I panicked when I saw the red second hand moving so fast, so fast. And it made me know, when it strikes midnight, the Messiah comes. So it was moving so fast. So I panicked. And then the second part of that conversation is this. That huge golden clock in the sky, the cloud came and covered half of it. And the other half became, it turned, following the same dimension, turned into a writing, two writings. The first one, the bigger letters, was the outer writing in a semicircle, and then the inner one, smaller, but in a semicircle too. They were all in captions, capital letters. The first one, the outer one, said, Jesus of Nazareth. The inner one said, is coming. And then I woke up. I panicked when I woke up. When I woke up, then I panicked again. I began running from nation to nation, announcing, I have seen the clock of God. I have seen the time in heaven. The time in heaven is one minute to midnight. Prepare. The Messiah is coming. Running until today. I've never stopped the running. Now, what is the message that the Lord is giving to the church? What is the message that the Lord is giving to the church of Christ from this tremendous 
vision of the midnight hour. What is the message that the Lord is giving to the church of Christ, to the body of Christ, from this very powerful, beautiful also, and fearful vision of the midnight clock? The Bible says very clearly that nobody knows the day or the hour. Matthew 24 verse 36 on, he says, nobody, not even the Messiah, not even the Son, whoever, not even the angels, nobody knows the day or the hour. So what is the message then? Hallelujah. Listen to this. The Lord knew there is no way I can translate, I don't know which formula, the time in heaven to translate into time on the earth. There's just no way. We don't know whether that means 10 years, 100 years, 5 years, weeks, months. Nobody knows. However, the message to the church is clear. The message says, time is over. Whether it's 10 years, it's 20 years, 5 years, 2 days, 2 weeks, 2 months. The message is clear. Time is over. Listen to this now. He says, whenever it is one minute to midnight, every time, I'm talking about the physical world we're in, every time it is one minute to midnight, it can only mean the following, that behold, the old day is gone, and the new day has arrived. That we can translate from there. That we can understand. Hallelujah. It can only imply that the old day is gone, is indeed gone, and there is nothing you can do about it. There is a unique sense of disarmament that happens when it's one minute midnight. Meaning, you like it or not, the new day will arrive. You be ready or not, it will arrive. Hallelujah. I'm only trying to help you understand this, because we cannot tell how many days. It is. How many weeks? How many months? But the message he intended to relay, that we can understand. Look at this now. Normally when you go home, the first thing you ask is, what will I wear tomorrow? People normally prepare. In the physical realm, in the physical realm, people prepare for the new day. So listen to this now. If you can prepare so well in the physical realm, for a mere 24-hour cycle, in fact, less than 24, right? If you can prepare so well with concern, great concern, what will I wear? For a mere 24-hour cycle, how much more then do you need to prepare for a new day that beholds eternity? Do you understand the message now? Hallelujah. Because he's saying, that even after 9,099 or 9,999 trillion years are over, eternity has not yet begun. That is just how enormous, how infinite eternity is. If you can prepare so well that today you came dressed differently and ready anew, you prepare, you looked anew for a mere 24 hours, maybe 12 hours a year. How much more should you prepare for 
the spiritual realm for that new day that comes with eternity everlasting. Oh yes, because it's profitable to do that, right? You don't have to change it every 24 hours. Now listen to this. That is the message the Lord brings to the church. Preparedness. However, this tremendous vision here. However, look at this now. The Bible. The Bible is the point of reference every time the Lord speaks. When the children of Israel were in Egypt and their slave masters became extremely abusive, they cried out to Jehovah. They cried out to the God of their father, Jacob. Jacob their father. And the God of Jacob raised forth Moses, the man of God. And when he raised Moses, he sent Moses to them. He said, tell them, go tell the house of Jacob, their cry has reached me. And tell them, I have decided from heaven here that I'm coming to deliver them from cruelty, from abuse, from slavery. And he said, however, when I come to deliver them from slavery, I must come at the midnight hour. And he said, Father on, that if I come at the midnight hour to deliver Israel, then Israel must prepare in a specific way for the midnight hour. And so he gave Moses the specific instruction on how to prepare for the midnight hour. Number one, he told Moses, tell them that when the midnight hour is about to arrive, nothing else will matter to me except one thing. Only one thing will now matter to me. When it comes the midnight hour, tell them to look for a perfect lamp without defect. Walk with me on this. And he said, once they get a perfect lamp without mistake, without error, without disease, without blemish, without defect, tell them to sacrifice that perfect lamp without defect. And he says, once they have offered, they have slaughtered that perfect lamp without defect, tell them to take the perfect blood of the perfect lamp without defect. And tell them, once they have gotten that perfect blood of the perfect lamp without defect, prepare it for midnight. When the midnight is near, tell them to take that blood and sprinkle on the doorpost and the door frames where they live. Taking the perfect blood of the perfect lamp, the midnight is near, sprinkling it. Door frame, door post. He says, when I come at the midnight hour, I will bring judgment unto the gods of Egypt. And when I bring judgment unto the idol gods of this world, however, for you, when I see the perfect blood of the perfect lamp, I will pass over. I will pass over you and bring you into the safety of God. Listen to this now. He says, when he sees, he says, nothing else matters at the midnight hour. Number one, the first thing that comes through is that he is saying 
that the sacrifice for the midnight hour must be a perfect sacrifice. Number two is saying it does not matter who was the baker in Goshen in Egypt. It does not matter who was the cook. It does not matter who was the rabbi. It does not matter who was the community leader. When the midnight hour comes, it does not matter who built more houses for families. He says, except now, only one thing will matter. The blood. That when I see the blood, I will deliver you. Did you understand that? The perfect blood of the perfect lamb. The book of Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. Verse 5 he says, The animals you choose must be year old males without defect. If I were you and I meet the word without defect, I would underline it. The animals you choose must be year old males without defect. And he says further on, and you may take them from the sheep or from the goats. And then verse 7 he says, they are to take some of the blood and put it on the side and the tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. Verse 8, the same night they are to eat the meat roasted over fire along with bitter herbs and bread without yeast. So he's saying that when the midnight hour comes, number one, nothing else matters to him anymore. He said, whether you were a community leader, you were the baker, you were the midwife, whoever it is, he says, all that will matter is this, that the midnight sacrifice be a perfect sacrifice. Number two, that that perfect midnight sacrifice has to be characterized by the perfect blood of the perfect lamb. Meaning, at midnight, nothing else will matter anymore except the blood. As the midnight closes in, the midnight hour. And, furthermore, he says, then they are now to take bitter herbs and start eating. The face won't look well, right? Because it's bitter. Bitter herbs and start eating. And then he says, and bread without yeast. Did you understand me? Let me just explain to you what that stands for. The bread without yeast and the bitter herbs. First of all, can we go to the church? Before we go to the church, we have to read verse 12 and we have to read 29, right? Verse 12 says, On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. Verse 13 he says, The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. Verse 29, then I will explain to you. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of the livestock as well. Can I explain now properly before we go to the church? The Lord was speaking to Israel the following. He was telling Israel that, look, when the midnight hour will come, I will bring judgment on Egypt. And I'm going to be striking down every firstborn. I will strike them down, both 
of the animals and the men in Egypt. And he said, however, for you, for you my people, for you the people of God, you shall get a perfect lamb without defect. And take the perfect blood of that perfect lamb without defect. And sprinkle it around on the door frame, door post, wherever you live. And when I come to strike down the gods of Egypt and their firstborn as a judgment, for you, the perfect blood of the perfect lamb that you will have offered and sprinkled will be the designation, the representation. It will be the embodiment. Of the blood of the firstborn of heaven that was already offered unto you during the laying of the foundation of the earth. <laughs> Hallelujah. Then your firstborn don't have to go because he already laid down his life for another during the laying of the foundation of the earth. How about the church? How about the church? The Lord is saying here that when the midnight hour closes in, nothing else matters anymore. Lord, I used to baptize many people. Lord, I planted many churches in Gisborne, also in, in Auckland, and I went all the way to Fiji and I planted churches. Lord, I healed people in your name. Lord, I evangelized in the streets. I was abused for your name. And he says, nothing of that will matter anymore. All that will matter when the midnight hour strikes is that when the Lord comes, he sees the perfect blood of the perfect Passover lamb of God. Can we read John chapter 129? John chapter 1 verse 29 he says, The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. For Israel, they needed to take a lamb without deformity, without defect, without error, without mistake, without blemish. And sacrifice at the midnight hour. But for the church, he's telling us here that Christ Jesus the Messiah, he is the perfect Lamb of God without defect. He came without defect. And he left without defect defect. <laughs> and he's saying that when the midnight hour draws closer, nothing else will matter unto the Lord. How many churches you planted? How many people you baptized? How many cities you visited? How many sermons you preached? Whatever. He says, all that will matter on that day, when the midnight hour strikes, is that when he looks at you, he sees the blood. The blood of Jesus cover you. 
<laughs> and that means the Lord has sent me here. He has sent me to the church of Christ, to the body of Christ, to ask some serious questions. He has brought me here to go into the church, inside the church, and ask from inside there. And ask them, Church of Christ, ever since you received the Jesus of Nazareth, are you really covered by the blood? The Lord is asking, ever since you became a pastor, are you really covered by the blood of Jesus? The Lord is asking, that ever since you became a pastor, have you been covering the sheep with the perfect blood of the perfect lamb that is the Messiah? Or you are covering them with the world? You know, Libro, we have to, you know, this is a modern country. Um, when I was in the theological college, there are different schools of thought. What? Huh? Huh? You are covering them with academic curiosity, academic wisdom, different schools of thought. You are debating the word of God, subjecting it to the democratic process. And yet he says, he is totally justified to ask this question, whether you are really covered by the blood of Jesus. Why? Because he says that the blood of Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Final sacrifice. The highest sacrifice. Meaning, if anybody be covered by that blood, that blood has ultimate power. There's no greater power. If you are a sinner in the world, a child of the world, and you receive Jesus, and that blood covers you, right away, your identity changes. You become a child of God. If you are a child of darkness, and the blood touch you, cover you, you right away become a child of the light. If you are a slave to sin, and that blood cover you, right away you hate sin, become a slave, a servant of righteousness. In other words, he's saying that when it's near the midnight hour, then this becomes the dispensation for the blood. The dispensation for returning into the church, the cross. For returning the cross back to the church. Because the cross is the blood. Hallelujah. Put it back. We have to put it back. He's saying that these are the days that were long awaited. The days when the cross and the blood would come back, would come back and restore our lives and our children and our families and our gospel and our vision and our eternity and our hope. These are the days He's saying these are the days. It is not a joke. He's saying that in the past, can I read for you something that you understand the gravity of this? The book of Exodus 15. The Exodus 15 that you may understand this gravity. Hallelujah. Oh yes. No. I knew that one day somebody would walk in here and say, Enough. Is enough. Let us return. Oh yes, we have to return. Because salvation has to realize in your life. 
that when people see you, they say, oh, this guy is born again. Oh, yes. We cannot be in some form of salvation that mixes us with the world. It's kind of fuzzy, has been normalized, that we have been normalized with the world. It's now difficult to know who is born again. No. He was meant to lift you up into a lofty place. That lofty place is a place of righteousness. Hallelujah. I'm talking about putting back the cross into the church. Can we read the book of Exodus 15? Verse 22. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because its water was bitter. It was bitter. That's why the place is called Mara, meaning bitter. Mira, Mara. And he says, so the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Then Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. Hallelujah. Put it back. We have to put it back. And he says, showed him a piece of wood. Then the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. I normally call it, the Lord showed him the sweet wood to throw into the bitter water that heals the bitter water to become sweet water. Sweet wood. <laughs> and he says this. He says, Then the Lord made a decree and a law to them, and there he tested them. He said, if you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you the diseases I brought on the Egyptians. For I am the Lord that heals you, not your water. Are you aware? He's saying, I am the Lord that heals you. He did not say, I am the Lord that heals your water. Be careful. So this whole experience was by design. And it was meant for Israel. That's why he said he tested them. And he tested them there. Ah! Let us get into the deep today. We must put it back. We will have to put it back into the church, right? Listen to what he says here. And he says very clearly here. I am the Lord that heals you. Then they came to Elim where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees. They kept there near the water. Can I explain this? There is another scripture too. There is the scripture of Second Kings, chapter 2, verse 19, which I need to read so I can explain together. That would be very powerful. Another moment again. Second Kings, chapter 2, verse 19. He says, The men of the city cried to Elisha, Look, our Lord, the town is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. Bring me a new bowl, he said, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring and threw the salt into it, saying, This is what the Lord says. I have healed this water. Never again. Will it cause death or make the land unproductive? And the water has remained wholesome to this day according to the words of Elijah, the 
Can I explain the two now? The first one. They traveled through the desert of Shur for three days. There are women and children here. And they are thirsting. They are looking for water for three days. You can imagine the desperation. You can imagine the anxiety. The fear. The thirst. The drought. When they came to this place called Mara. All of a sudden they ran into water. You can imagine the relief. The reprieve that ensued. You can imagine for yourself. The noise, the sound of containers being unloaded. But when they go to fetch the water and the tongues, the throats are expecting a drink. When they fetch, they find too bitter, toxic, cannot be drunk, not fit for human consumption, poisonous, deadly. So you can imagine when he says, and they cried out to Moses. They began to yell at him, to heckle him. When they cried out to him, Moses in turn cries out to the Lord. And when Moses cries out to the Lord, look what the Lord does. If you follow the Hebrew, the Hebrew is more interesting. When he says, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. In Hebrew, it translates into, and the Lord instructed him on the piece of wood. It translates to, and the Lord taught him, coached him on the piece of wood. Which is absolutely very powerful and right. Because in these dreams and visions that I see, there's a lot more that goes with what he's going to show. Or what you're going to say there. He teaches you how you're going to do it, how you're going to say it, how you're going to whatever, and put it there. There is an instruction, a whole package. That's how he knew that wood is for throwing where? Into the bitter water. Because he saw it in the dream. And so, he takes the wood. And he throws the wood into the bitter water. And the water is instantly healed. Hey, that's very powerful. Let's move on to the second one, right? I'm going to combine the two and explain. Elisha goes to this town. And they say, the town, as you can see, is well situated. But the water is toxic. Poisonous, bitter, is killing people, our children. And then Elisha does not ask them for a bowl from the temple of the Lord. No. Why? He asks for a new bowl. He does not tell them, run to the house of the Lord, bring me the bowl. He says, get me a new bowl. And when he looked at the movements of Elisha, to me this town sounds like Jericho. A rebellious town. They rebelled against the Lord. The water was good. Everything was right. Until the rebellion. That's why Elisha. Asked for a new bowl. He knows. The sacrifice in the house. There must be something sick with that sacrifice right now. Yes. Elisha knows what Jehovah. The God of Israel is capable of. He's capable of ensuring that. No water hurt you. For it to be hurting, there must be something wrong with the fellowship with the Lord. And that's why he asked for a new bowl, uncontaminated, undefiled, and he asked for salt. Salt represents the faithfulness of Jehovah over his covenant with men. And he takes that salt, which represents 
Lord to his covenant with man, he takes the salt and throws it into the water. In other words, what does that mean? He reminds the people there of the eternal covenant they have with the Lord. He says, let us return. Let us return to the covenant. The original. In other words, why have you forgotten the covenant? The same thing with Moses. However, here, listen to me. Here is very powerful. Because you see that the Lord designed, it was by design that they ran into three days in the desert of Shur without water, that they thirst. And then at the end, when they begin to heckle and to make noise at Moses, then he showed Moses the piece of wood. Look at this now. Then he said, there he tested them. And he turns around and says, I am the Lord that heals you. Look at what he saw. He is essentially saying, this whole thing was about Israel. It was not really about water now. It was about the condition of Israel. It was about Israel. But look at this now. It was not even about Mara. It was about Elim. It was about the next destination. Where there was plenty of water and plenty of everything. First of all, he looked at Israel and he realized that they were literally a moving Egypt. And he said, no way. There is no way they are going to enter there in this form. And the healing of the bitter water at Marah was talking about the deliverance of Israel. The healing of the bitterness of Israel. Deliverance of Israel that now when Israel is healed, she will be in condition to come to a live. In fact, that water was healed that now it may sustain the next segment that they may reach there. Let me read with you the book of John chapter 3. Then I give you the final message on that one. John 3, 13 to 16. Verse 14, in fact 14. 14 he says, Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in Him may have eternal life. And then he says, For God so loved the world, all the way. When there was this terrible situation, the snake biting them, out of their disobedience, rebellion. Then the Lord does this. He shows him a piece of wood. And that piece of wood, he tells him to get a bronze snake and hang it on that piece of wood. And he says, whosoever is beaten, if they will look at that wood and the snake that is hanging there, they will not die, but have life. Eternal life. Have life. Do you understand what the wood is? And Jesus comes and says, just as he placed, he hung the snake on the wood, so shall the Son of Man be hung on the wood. When you continue on a journey, walking on, soldiering on, and then all of a sudden, the original fountain, the fountain of living water, that the Lord established in the church, that if any man be thirsty, he comes. Do you remember the Feast of Tabernacles? That if any man be thirsty, he come and drink of it. And he will never thirst again. Do you remember the woman of the well? The living waters. They have the bubbles up of life. Like a Sprite. You know Sprite, the drink. Has bubbles up of life. And he says, He established the fountain of living water in the house. And as you move on as the church, then all of a sudden, the fountain of living water that was meant to give 
water, life, turns toxic, turns bitter, becomes poison. He says, hey, when that happens, that your daughters go to church and become pregnant, that your sons go to church and fall to sin, that your husbands go to church, find another woman. That when the church becomes the center of death, not life. He says, when that happens on that journey, always remember one thing. Put it back. Put it back. Go back to it and put it back in the house. Put it back. And when you put it back, that original covenant, it will always heal the bitter waters in the church and it will give life again. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. That's what he said. That's what he said when he showed me the clock that is one minute to midnight. That's what he said when he showed me the midnight hour, the vision of the midnight hour. That is what he meant. He said, tell them, Nothing else matters now. Nothing else will matter now. Only the blood. Only the cross. Tell them to put it back. Put it back. The midnight hour is the hour for the cross. Is the hour of the blood. That when I see the cross in the house, that when I see the blood in the house, I will deliver them into the safety of heaven as the tribulation and the great tribulation consume the earth. Did you understand? He says, Church of Christ, how come you become so postmodern, so modern, you don't want anymore the old rugged cross, the old dirty cross, and yet that is the cross that delivered me that is where my hope is. How about you? Where is your hope? Where is your hope? Where is your hope? He says, our hope is in uh, the state, the nationhood. We have come a long way and we've basically done well. No. Where is your hope? Is it in the economy? Where is your hope? He says, put it back into your salvation. If you look at the salvation in the land, it's virtually without the cross. If you look at the salvation, the way Christians are walking, you want to close your eyes like this as you walk. Oh yes. You have to close your eyes. And when you follow these people, you find, hey, these people are Christians. He's saying, the Christian is now walking without the cross. And that is the lowest point to which the church can fall. Because that means you have essentially renounced Christ Jesus. And that's why you see that there is no deliverance in the lives of the Christians. Why? Because when he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he travailed and the sweat came out like blood. He wept. In fact, it was so heavy. At one point, he asked the Father, should I pass this cup on? The cup of salvation, no it, huh? Should I pass it on? That is the cup that when he sat on the table, he said, 
drink. This is the cup of my blood. The cup of the blood of the covenant. Do this in remembrance of me. That was the cup. In the garden of Gethsemane, he travailed with that cup. He struggled. He wanted, he wanted to pass it on. Then he said, the sweat like blood. Then he said this. He said, the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. I want to ask you one question. Who is it that crucified Jesus? Who is it that crucified Jesus? It is the Holy Spirit of the Lord. <laughs> That's why he said the Spirit is willing. From that point on, the Holy Spirit took him straight to the cross and nailed him there. The same Holy Spirit that revealed him at Bethlehem is now the same Holy Spirit that took him straight to the cross and nailed him there. And when he nailed him there, then the same Holy Spirit allowed him to go down and then resurrected him. Do you understand me well? At the garden and on the cross. If the Holy Spirit is the one that nailed him on the cross without sin, what was the message to the church? Essentially, the Lord was saying, I have come to show you the way to the kingdom of God. And the way to the kingdom of God passes through this cross. The church is very much aware of who the Holy Spirit is. However, the church of Christ does not want to deal with him. Why? Because to deal with the Holy Spirit means you have to surrender everything. Listen to this now. Listen. And each Christian has their things. These are mine. That they are keeping. I'm born again, but from this point on, this is now mine. This I give to Christ, but this is now mine. And they are full of me, 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 me. Mine, mine, mine. Self-centered. As they accept Christ, they hold on to certain things. That's why sometimes they still drink. Sometimes they still smoke. Sometimes they still wear tight trousers, short skirts in church, whatever. Those things do not belong to the house of the Lord. Those things do not appertain to salvation. And that's why they know that the Holy Spirit crucified Jesus. And they know that submitting fully to the Holy Spirit means He will take you straight to that cross and crucify that flesh. No, you know. You know, that's why you don't want to deal with Him. You know that if you surrender, He will take you to the end crucify that flesh. And when He crucifies the flesh, the spirit church will be bathed out. That's why you see Nicodemus appears to the cross again to pick the body that was damaged beyond human recognition. To complete the conversation they had with Jesus, John chapter 3, where he said, That which is born of the flesh gives birth to the flesh. That which is born of the spirit gives birth to the spirit. Nicodemus appears to complete the conversation. When now Nicodemus looks at this damaged body and he realizes that indeed a new birth. That spiritual birth that he was questioning. Should I enter back into my mother's womb? Then he realizes that new birth has just happened here. The new church has just been birthed out. This is a spiritual being. That is the way that Jesus showed the church. That in all our worship, salvation, born again, Christianity, we would fully submit to the Holy Spirit. 
and he would nail this flesh. That your, your biggest enemy, Satan in you, is you. Is the flesh. That's why, for me, my calling obviously involves a lot of prayer and fasting. Fasting is key, central there. All the time is fasting. And I'm talking about the dry fast that Jesus did. No TV, no newspapers, no water, no sugar, no food, no juice, no nothing. Dry fast. That is what Jesus taught us. If we do another, that is another. And so, fasting is the crucifixion of the flesh. That's why the days you fast, when you walk through the streets, you look at everybody, you feel sorry for them. You feel so sorry. So how come they don't? Look how they are walking. They are not even fasting. They are not even aware that fasting is the true salvation of the cross and the blood. And only by fasting in the wilderness, he broke the back, the backbone of the devil. So, that path of fasting that Jesus showed us, we must continue walking down that road or up that road. Did you understand the crucifixion I'm talking about? And then, he also told Israel that when the midnight hour comes, you should eat bread without yeast. What is bread without yeast? Today, in Israel, it's different. When I was studying in Israel, when the Lord called me, I was on Mount Carmel, studying there, and I did not even know what was happening. I was just studying there. I did not even know what was happening. However, when this season comes of Passover, Pesach, then the garbage is full of things, TV, what, you know, sofa sets, cookers, everything. They throw things out there. A lot of things. And then, as they do that, I asked, why do you people waste a lot of things like this? They said, no. When that night comes, not even a single piece of yeast should be found in your house. And if there's anything you cannot clean, and you're sure you cannot clean, you just throw it out. I said, wow. Then I asked. I said, but that's a waste. He said, no, 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 no. We look at it differently. We look at it as in yet another opportunity to begin afresh. Isn't the church going to learn here today? This is the classroom for the church now. I was shocked as why I used to witness there. I mean, to watch it. So I may come and share with you. And I asked them, and expensive? They said, no, it does not matter how expensive. If you cannot clean it out. Even the shops that sell bread, they clean and clean the section. And if they feel they cannot, they seal it out. They decide to seal that section totally during that time. And they say, however expensive it is, you must throw it out. Isn't there a lesson for the church? We too now, the midnight hour is near. And as the midnight hour draws closer, the Lord is saying that you have to go and examine your life. And check it out and find out, what is it in my life that constitutes yeast? However expensive it is. If you encounter whatever you know, this is yeast in my salvation. He says, lay a hand, catch it, lay a hand on it, and throw it out. Throw it out. However expensive it is. Follow me on this. It may be a new car that somebody immoral bought you. 
I don't know what it is. You know. Search for them. And clean them out. Rather you remain with nothing. And the midnight hour meets you. Clean and pure. Than to remain with the wealth of the world. And the midnight hour. Find you with yeast. And then you remain right here. Did you understand the message of the clock? The message of the midnight hour. Clean out the yeast. And for you the pastors. Remove the yeast from the bread. Let us return to preaching the pure, uncompromised bread without yeast. The holy word. This yeasting and caramelization of the word, sweetening of the word, must now come to an end. Pastors, you must clean it out. He's saying that no more yeast in the bread. Dispense Bread without yeast. Why? Because bread without yeast is durable. Bread with yeast, one weekend you go somewhere, come back, full of fungus and everything. However, it's tasty to the flesh, to the tongue. And he's saying, it doesn't matter the taste now. Let us stay the holy course. He says, bitter herbs. Those Pesach dinners, they say, we eat this bitter herb to remember the bitter slavery from which he removed us. Church, do you ever remember where the Lord removed you from? Because they say, in this milk and honey, in this affluence, diamond, what in Tel Aviv, whatever, we can easily forget. Bitter heart stands for the bitterness of the slavery they underwent. The rejection they were subjected to. And the Lord is saying, at the midnight hour, the church too, if you are truly walking in the ways of God, righteous, holy, there is no way this dark world will love you. No way. They have to reject you. And he's saying, it is okay at this hour to be rejected. But because they are modern, what they will do is this. They say, oh, you see, I love my pastor. Me, I just like joy. I want to be happy, happy, whatever. They fear loneliness. And the Lord is saying, at this hour, it's alright to be alone. Learn to stand alone, even in the church. And he's saying, that when you stand alone, that people fear, and the so-called loneliness, then they will be shocked. Because you will be like me. Why? Because full of high, every day you are happy, every day you are joyous, the Holy Spirit. Every day I'm on high. Every day. Every day when I remember the work, when I think of the work, when I hear his voice instructing me to go, it is full joy, full power, preaching with the bone. Oh, there is fire. There is a fire that comes with standing with the Lord. Don't worry about loneliness. There won't be any time for loneliness. Your neighbors will come. They find you singing. They hear you singing in the house. They see you coming. You greet them. How are you? The Lord bless you. They will ask, why is she always happy? 
then when they ask you, you know, for them they are depressed. They sit in front of a psychologist. And for you, you will say, have you heard about the Jesus of Nazareth? He is the one I have. He is my joy. But the church has psycho counselors. Psychological counselors in the church. Oh yes, they sit with you. And they ask you if you had your breakfast. And they ask you, how did you feel then? And they make you talk. And counseling is a whole ministry today in church. Psychological counseling. They even train pastors. And they ask, um, did you take a walk today? And then at the end he says, I can see our time is running out. And say, uh, let me see you again on Monday, same time. And please have your breakfast before you come. How can the church submit to that? When the chief counselor, the senior counselor, is in the house. Let us return. Let the church return. Let's put it back. Let's put back the cross. That there may be deliverance in the house. That psychiatrists may come for help in the house. Thy psychologist may come to the house and receive the Lord and find counsel and find healing. That's what the Lord is saying. In the book of Romans 13:11, He says, And do this understanding the present time. The hour has come for you to wake up from your slumber because our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. The night is nearly over, meaning the midnight is about to get here. The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. So let us put aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us behave decently as in daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy, rather clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Hallelujah. The Lord is saying that the midnight hour is nearly here. The night is nearly over. Listen, precious people. The morning is nearly here. The midnight is nearly here. And the Lord is saying, let us clothe ourselves now. If the new day is a day of light, then let us clothe ourselves with a garment of light. If the new day is a day of righteousness, let us clothe ourselves with righteousness. If a new day is a day of glory like we know, He's coming in the splendor of the glory, then let us clothe ourselves with light, with the glory of the Lord. But He says, clothe yourselves therefore with Christ Jesus. The only way you can clothe yourself with Christ Jesus is to cover yourself with the perfect blood of the perfect Lamb that is Christ Jesus. Hallelujah. I need to bring it to an end here. This is the hour to break out and say, I don't care anymore. Please, can you repeat this prayer with me? Say, dear Jesus, I submit myself to you today and surrender my life to you. Lord, I ask you to help me 
and establish salvation in my life. A holy salvation. Establish righteousness in me. And remove sin from my life. I ask you, Lord Jesus, to fill me with the Holy Spirit. And keep my name in the book of life of the Lamb of God. Precious Jesus, release your anointing to bless me, restore me, empower me in the mighty name of Jesus. Today, I am born again. Amen. The Midnight Hour Matthew 25 verses 1 to 13 I'm reading Matthew 25 He says At that time the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom And he says The foolish ones took their lamps and did not take any oil with them Verse 4 he says the wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. And then it says, The bridegroom was long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. And then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. Verse 9, no, they replied, there may not be enough for both us and you. Instead, you go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourselves. Verse 10. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. And the door was shut. Verse 11. Later, others also came. Sir, Sir, open for us. And then verse 12, he says, But he replied, I tell you the truth, I do not know you. And then verse 13 says, Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. Look now, this parable is set to challenge, which means contest, right? The church's inclusive tendencies in the narrative. In the description of the kingdom of God. The wise virgins refuse to share with the destituted, the disadvantaged. And then, you also see that the Messiah comes and left out some people. He left out some people for the kingdom. These people are painfully left outside, regardless of their desperate plea. <laughs> These people are what? Painfully left out from the kingdom regardless of their desperate plea. Lord, Lord, please. Lord, Lord, please open for us. Sasha, please open for us. They are left out painfully regardless of their desperate plea. The same Jesus that always sympathized with the destitute. 
Now, he's able to leave out a certain group of people without caring about their desperate plea. They are crying out to him, but he leaves them out. Hallelujah. It is therefore possible from face value, it is therefore possible from a first glance to misconstrue this parable. To misunderstand this parable as implying the first case of the biblical exaltation of selfishness. So it's therefore possible at the first glance to think that this parable is your first case to see the Bible exalting what? Selfishness. But he said, misconstrue. To misunderstand. Hallelujah. Even much more difficult to understand. Even much more disturbing. Even much more troubling. Is the fact that. Those who have the privilege and the opportunity. And the advantage. To prepare well. Don't seem too keen. To help the destituted. It's very disturbing that. They say, no, no you go away. Because in Christian, in Christian values, eh, that you people have taught, the sweet Christian values, the most immediate thing there would have been, oh, uh, sorry, just pour for you a little, but don't get used to this. Eh? No, 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 they don't share, they don't seem keen at all. So that's very disturbing because we're talking about Christian values. But there is a point the Lord is raising here. See, when it comes to the matter of the kingdom of God, no, he won't lower. There are certain responsibilities that must be underscored by you. Because they are not keen to help the disadvantaged. The people who have been destituted, thrown in the streets. Eh? The Bible says run there and feed them and help them. Share with them what you have. But now, it's very disturbing that despite their desperate plea, they are actually left out without nobody to care for them. So that really is an awakening into the gospel that we are in, eh? we are living can I move on now? Those with the advantage of the oil don't seem too willing to share their oil with the disadvantaged. Those with the advantage of the sweet oil, of the oil, don't seem too willing to share their oil with the destituted and the disadvantaged of this world. <laughs> Meaning, they are not even willing to enter with you. They don't want to enter with you or what? And if you listen to what I said a few minutes ago here, it was as though the wise virgins are the ones who sent the foolish ones to go. To go, you go. At the command of the wise ones, the foolish went. This implies that when it comes to the matter of preparedness, the Lord is not willing to compromise on the standards of heaven. That's the first thing that you see projecting from that parable. It means, it implies, that when it comes to the matter of preparedness, the Lord is not willing to lower the benchmark of heaven, the standard of heaven. He's saying that no, in this whole episode, then it means that when it comes to the matter of preparedness, the Lord is not ready to lower the standards of heaven. Can we read the book of Hebrews chapter 12 verse 14? Now that is the standard of heaven. Where it says, 
make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Then he says, for without holiness, nobody will see the Lord. Meaning, whether you are my friend now, I don't know you. I will not know you on that. So, that is what the parables bring out. It's bring out the fact that the Lord is not willing to lower the standards of heaven. Hallelujah. Yes. There is a message there about the standards of the kingdom of God. Because the, the kingdom of heaven will be like this. Meaning the kingdom of God will be like this. Meaning it will be unrelenting on the standard set. If the standard is righteousness, so be it. So shall it be. If it's holiness, yes it shall be. So, so these are some of the messages we hear coming through from that parable. It is as though the Lord is using this parable to say that all people were given sufficient time to prepare. It is as though the Lord is using this parable to say that all people were given sufficient time to prepare. And hence, a failure to be ready is totally inexcusable. Did somebody hear that? It is as though the Lord is using this parable to say that all people were given sufficient time to prepare. This act is yet another vivid sober reminder. This act the Lord is doing in this parable here of leaving these people out, right? And they are crying desperately to the Lord that said he doesn't want to leave people out, right? This act is yet another solid or sober, vivid reminder of the fact that the Lord Jesus who preached so much love, this act is yet another sober, vivid reminder that the Lord Jesus who preached so much love sometimes has to do this, look, has to lift up the hammer and strike it. The hammer of justice comes to the kingdom of God. Now, if you catch that message right there, you just run. You just start running away. Say, ah, let me just go and prepare properly. When you catch this, it slits your ear. So you just say, ah, I've caught what I needed. I'm just running home now to start preparing. Because I'm realizing he's going to hammer it down, right? The same Jesus that preached a lot of love. They are pleading. They are crying. And leave them out. Say, no, I don't want you to enter. I don't even know you. Are we together? Because I said when it comes to entry. Because he said, the kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of God is like. Meaning, when it comes to the kingdom of God. He has now to lift the hammer and. Bah. And you have to give now scriptures that talk about how he preached that love so much. To be able to highlight this point. When you see how much love he preached. Then you understand. Let's go to Mark chapter 12, verses 30. Mark chapter 12, verses 30 to 31. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than those. You heard what the Lord preached. So that neighbor comes crying, please help me some little oil. Things are bad now. Please help me. And then you just cut him out when Jesus preached this. That now tells you of his stand when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. 
His strength is different. Oh yes. Oh yes. The second one, B, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. Leviticus what? 19, 18. Hallelujah. Then the scripture we are reading is C, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. The next one is Matthew 7, 7 to 8, right? Which says, again, Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 to 8. He says, ask and it will be given to you. But they asked, when it comes to the kingdom of God, they asked and they were denied. So did you understand properly now? Oh, yes. And they say, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will open to you. They knocked and it was closed. So when it comes to the kingdom of God, now you understand that the rules are different. Sometimes the Messiah has to take a hammer of justice and strike it on the table on you. When in actual sense you really even wished he would not have to do that. Right? But there are certain standards of heaven. And you say one of the key things he's talking about here is saying that no, everybody was already given enough sufficient time to prepare. So failure to prepare at this last moment is totally inexcusable. And later you'll hear me saying things like, like right now, how can the church even fail to prepare or fall asleep when we are sitting right on the verge of eternity? Eternity is about to happen. Huh? That's now you I'm talking to here. Eternity is just about to happen. How can you slumber or slope or fall down at this hour? We are sitting on the verge of eternity. And so everything has to be tightened up. Yes. And they knocked and it was shut instead. <laughs> no. I'm only talking about the kingdom of God. And if you understand the essence of this parable, as we are soon going to see in the next sub-chapter, sub-topic, is that this parable also comes out as a warning. The real purpose is really to warn that you may not fall into the other side. So we have seen, and knock, and it shall be opened unto you. So when you are preaching to the church, when you are talking with the church, when you are talking to the church about this situation here, about how the Lord is unrelenting on the standards of heaven, when you are speaking to the church about that, how all of a sudden he is very unforgiving on this, right? on entry, on preparedness. Then it becomes more powerful for you to highlight, because he said that the same Jesus that preached love so much, so much love, when it comes to the matter of entry, sometimes he has to lift up the hammer of justice and bang it down on us, right? Because of the standards of heaven. Then you refer them to where he preached love. And that will really exalt this point you are bringing here. That wow, these are the things he said. The ask you shall be given, but they asked they were not given. Knock, it shall be opened. No, they knocked, it was shut. And they, In fact, actually, he rebuked them. When they knocked the door to heaven, he rebuked them. It was a rebuke. Can we move on then? The Lord is then using this parable to emphasize that preparedness cannot be shared. The Lord is then using this parable to emphasize that preparedness cannot be A, shared, B, transferred. The Lord is mightily using this parable to re-emphasize to the church, to re-emphasize the present day church, that preparedness cannot be A, shared, B, transferred. 
up now I have so much preparedness, I need to transfer this to one of my daughters or my sons so that, huh? He said no. No, he said no. And that shocks you that he can say that, right? <laughs> can I move on now? The Lord is essentially saying here that preparedness is a matter of personal responsibility. <laughs> at you'll prepare as a group. At you'll enter as a group. Eh? There you go now. <laughs> there you go now. He's saying that preparedness is a matter of personal responsibility. That's why he's saying it cannot be shared. Because I, I want, I actually, what I love is the following. I want to go to heaven. I want to go with my child, my husband, and then my children, and then I, even my friends in the church. There are few of them really. I, I need to mention them. You want to go with them, okay? The, which heaven? That's now another one. Another heaven is okay. You can go with them. But this heaven I'm talking about, the one of Jehovah. He said, "You be careful. Begin to prepare yourself, and you just go ahead and enter right away." Don't wait for anybody else. Because preparedness is a matter of personal responsibility. That's why it cannot be shared, cannot be transferred. Hallelujah. Oh yes. Do you understand that, that when the Lord spoke in parable, we only needed Him to open our eyes to really see it. So we can help the church, right? Can we move on then? He is saying that preparedness, this greatly emphasizes that preparedness rests Squarely on personal accountability. That on that day you will be personally accountable. Squarely rests personal accountability. That you should be able to account for yourself on that day. Where, where? So those of you who have been longing to enter with wife, husband, children, many. It's a good aspiration. Oh, oh, the lawyers would say it's a lofty aspiration, right? But, he's saying, you first enter... And then help the others. Because you know that they will have to account for themselves. <laughs> Hallelujah. You first enter. Can I move on now? If the wise virgins, another thing we learn from this parable, is that if the wise virgins had shared their oil with the foolish, if the wise virgins had shared their precious oil, with the foolish. If the wise virgins had shared their precious oil with the foolish, a tragedy would have happened. They would have tragically missed the kingdom of God. <laughs> hey. If the wise virgins had shared their precious oil, their treasured oil with the foolish, they would have tragically missed the kingdom of heaven. And the Bible would have been written differently. Where were Just to re-emphasize on how you cannot transfer or share. Eh? And we have talked about this before. And I've said, the anointing for this hour, the anointing for preparedness, stands a high risk of being plundered. I use the word plundered, looted. Huh? He's saying no. To go on TV and say, you see the type of anointing there? I want like that man. No, 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 no. 
It says, when you have the anointing for preparedness, you be careful also to know or to note that the devil wants to take it. Why? To sink both of you. To sink him and you. Because him, he knows he is sunk. So he's saying, if the wise virgins had probably shared their oil, they would have most definitely not had enough oil for themselves. You cannot say that you are going to the world to redeem the world. So you read the world, and then the world converts you to the world. But don't laugh. That is the tragedy that happened to the church out there. They went to the world to, 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 to deliver the world, to win the world, to convert the world. But instead the world converted them. That's why now the world is with them. There's worldliness in the church. That's why my calling became relevant. That's why the Lord has sent me. Otherwise, if they had done it right, there was no need. Hallelujah. And we're just talking about the first part. First part of this parable. So he's saying, they would have miserably missed entry into the glorious kingdom of God. They would have, as a result, miserably missed entry into the glorious kingdom of God. Are we together? Hallelujah. So you can counter the caramelized and sweet gospel that's being preached out there with this. You go to them, no, the kingdom of God is not much inclusive. The kingdom of God is separated. The kingdom of God is righteous. It is strong on holiness. So you go and counter it. Why? Because in these days, there are no preachers of righteousness out there. And then he says, the good works of the oil that the wise virgins had cannot be shared in any way. The good works of the oil that the wise virgins had cannot be shared in any way. Now, can I share what those good works are? For example, the fear of God in your heart. You cannot share it with somebody else. That is just you. You can preach it, but you can never enforce it in somebody else. You can preach it to them. And based on how you have it, you can preach it to them. But you can never enforce it. The fear of God, they are matters of the heart. These things can be shared because they are actually matters of the heart. Amen. Oh yes, you cannot enforce it. I force you now. I put you down. I command you now. I order you now. And in saying, A, fear of God. B, a righteous lifestyle. Those are matters of the heart. C, contriteness of the heart. Contrite, which is really humbleness, which I'm also mentioning down here. Humility. Of the heart. Zeal for God in the heart. The reason these things can't be shared because they are matters of the heart. These are attributes of the heart. And hence cannot be shared. Because they are a personal responsibility of a man or a woman. Do you understand what the parable is saying? You say no. Preparedness cannot be shared. It's about the heart. Yes, they are matters of the heart. Personal accountability. Personal responsibility. So I want now the subtopic, which is the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, whichever you want, but kingdom of God. That's now a new topic. Now the next topic is called the kingdom of God. When he said, the kingdom of heaven is like, in other words, now we know that meant the kingdom of God is like, what did the Lord mean? Hallelujah. That's the next topic now. When the Lord began by saying the kingdom of heaven is like, essentially, 
talked about the kingdom of God. Meaning, he was implying the kingdom of God. That's number one. Number two, he was implying the coming of the rule of God. Did you understand that part? But if you see what he has done in that parable at the end of it, then you see number three, he's also talking about the coming of the rule of God's justice. Because some people are left out. The rule of God's justice. Hallelujah. Can we move on now? So, when the Lord talked about the coming of the kingdom of heaven, we have now seen that essentially implied the coming of the reign of God. The coming of the rule of God. But when he talked about that, what is the message he brought to this church? Number one, you see that the Lord essentially implied that the coming of God's rule or the coming of the kingdom of God would bring with itself or would generate number one fear and stun. Hallelujah. In that parable we see the great shock that takes place at the midnight hour when the announcement comes regarding the coming of the bridegroom, the arrival of the bridegroom, we see a tremendous shock that consumes both the wise and the foolish and the desperate cry and plea and the panic and the running to look for oil. So in other words, the Lord was saying, number one, that the coming of the kingdom of God or the coming of God's rule would be characterized by great shock Fear and trembling. That's number one. That's the first message the parable gives us, right? That, that is it. That is it. When the Lord said, the kingdom of heaven is like, in that parable, he essentially meant that the coming of God's rule, number two, would be characterized by division and separation. It would generate a great division and separation. It would divide the earth into two pieces. Even the church. It would come with a great division and separation. Because we see in that parable, that same church has two congregations. One is a righteous congregation, and the other one is the unrighteous congregation. Righteous versus unrighteous. Holy versus unholy. Faithful versus unfaithful. Wise versus unwise. So essentially the Lord was saying that the coming of the rule of God would generate, would give birth to a great division and separation in the church and on the earth. Hallelujah. He's saying that number one, it would generate a lot of fear and trembling. Like you said, Lord, help us. That is panic and fear. And shock and stun. You can see they were shocked he has come. Especially if he delayed. You can see, we are coming to that now. You can see in this parable, the coming of the bridegroom is delayed. And I'm coming to the waiting process and I have some points for you about the waiting. What message was it giving to the church? But he's saying here 
that this is what happens. He's saying that shock and fear. And number two, he says, a great division and separation. Under it like this, division and separation. These are the points. Matthew 24. Matthew 24, verse 40. Hallelujah. Matthew 24, verse 40 to 42. Are you ready? And he says, two men will be in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. And he says, two women will grinding with a meal. One will be taken and the other left. Verse 42. Therefore, keep watch. You, 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 you. Therefore, you, you keep watch. Eh? Because of this kind of narration. For you, you just keep watch. Eh? He says, therefore, you keep watch. Therefore, keep watch because you do not know on what day the Lord, your Lord, will come. Did you understand properly? So he's saying that the coming of God's reign will be characterized by this. A great division and separation whereby two women, can you imagine, grinding on the same meal. They're doing like this on this side. Like this, the hunger is going to the same pot. Meaning they are really together in their practice in life. But when that moment comes, he says, separate the two. Whether they are co-joined, co-joined in by the hip or whatever, you, they have to be cut like this and separated. Huh? That's what he's saying. When he's saying that the wise virgins are separated out and taken, that's what he implies. That you should be aware. This church... The church of this hour should be aware that the coming of the reign of God, the rule of God, will generate forth a great separation and division. So, you are used to your friends. You do things together. You do Bible fellowship together. You walk together. You eat together. Drink together. Talk together. But when that day comes, separate the two. So, don't even rely on somebody that we are walking together with him. Don't. Did you understand the target here? Yes, he's trying to make you stand on your own and prepare for this thing. Two men in the same field. Wow. Not even in two fields. Same field conversation together. They plowed it together. They are working together. Now when the kingdom of God comes, they have to be separated. Oh, that's amazing. That's a great separation and division. Two women, same grinding mill. One remains there in the grinding mill. The other one has been taken. Is in other words saying the characteristic of the coming of the kingdom of God is this one, right? A great separation and division. And still under that, so we have seen now the great separation and division under it we have seen the scripture. And then we are going to another point under it still until we are exhausted. It will separate, like I said, the righteous from the unrighteous. The faithful from the unfaithful. The believers from the non-believers. The holy believers from the unholy believers. The Christians from non-Christians. The brethren from the heathen. You see, whatever. They, the list on and on, right? And the next thing under that next scripture there is Luke chapter 17. Are you ready with me? Luke 17. Verses 34 to 36. Still on the same separation. Great separation and division. Luke 17, 34 to 36. Hallelujah. Luke 17, 34, 36. Can I read it? I tell you that on that night, two people will be in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. 
But that's amazing. Then he says, then he goes on to say, two women who've been grinding together will be grinding grain together. One will be taken, one the other and left. But what I wanted to emphasize is this. You hear that night. So that night can mean that we're in the night time. That's number one. Number two, that night can mean that one part of the earth will be day and the other will be night time. Did you understand? But the key thing you want to understand there, these are married people. Two people in one bed. This is husband and wife. And he's kind of saying that out of a couple, I'll take one, leave the other. Meaning, the condition of the heart. Ah! That is such a great division, eh? And separation. When now you decide, ah, ah, me, I'm going to Bible college. You're not taking Charles' birthday. No, me, I have a Bible fellowship. And then it will teach the wife, the husband, okay, it will teach the husband to understand that eh, they don't care cake. For a man that I know loves cake, all of a sudden he says, no, wait, wait. she'll get her Bible and run also. <laughs> Hallelujah. Oh, he will, right? Yes, because the women have a greater zeal. So he will be forced to pursue God. Not, not to please you, but for himself. Because you see, you are doing it for you. You are moving on. You are coming home, he is grumbling around, he saying, why are you down like that? Whatever. You, you are just singing, hallelujah, as you are cooking, whatever. He, they see, you are moving on without caring. And he said, I'd rather join these people. Yeah, because he comes home, he finds you are sitting discussing a Bible. Yes, the Bible, there is a cake there, he's reading the Bible, and, and he looks from the other room, he looks like this, ah, actually, I need to join these people. Oh, yes, that is the reality the Lord is trying to awaken in you. Because he's saying personal responsibility. You cannot enforce it. But the way you do it can cause others to also pursue their personal. So that is what the parable is all about. And he says, two people in bed, meaning husband and wife. So that's really a great separation and division. Can we move on now? So, we have talked about the great shock and trembling, or shock and stun, whichever way you put it. We are talking about, look, look, when he said, the kingdom of heaven will be like this. We already mentioned the point. He said the first one, great shock and stun. And number two, great division and separation. Under which several points, there was Matthew 24, and then we came to Luke 17. Great division and separation. And then under it we get another one, two, three, the two, the points. Righteous against unrighteous. Holy against unholy. Faithful against unfaithful. Believers against the heathen. Whatever. Christians and Christians. Down like this, Parker Luke 17. Under the same under. Now we are moving back to C. Right? It will bring great resistance. People will resist. Because when you look at the earth today, they have resisted to prepare. If you look at the foolish virgins, their act is a resistance. It's a, an act of resistance. Hallelujah. But can I mention another resistance? That's one resistance right there. Because when you look at the act of the foolish church, even the church you see all over the world today, they are resisting to prepare for the kingdom. Now those who are saying, when that time comes, it will raise for the great resistance in the church out there. And the world, by the way, they don't want to hear Jesus. It's so terrible. So there's a big resistance in the world against the kingdom, against God, against what is godly, against what is righteous. 
So he was implying that the coming of the kingdom of God from the act of the foolish virgins, it means it will raise forth a generation of people who have great resistance to anything godly, anything God. Under that resistance, it would raise forth a hindrance. A hindrance, as we are soon going to see. Because he is saying that the day and the hour is not even known. So that becomes a major hindrance for entry. That is now the hindrance to entry. Because if you look at the way he was saying, he was saying that the kingdom of heaven, the coming of the kingdom of heaven, meaning the coming of the kingdom of God, the coming of the rule of God, when he said the kingdom of heaven, and then he's talking about the bridegroom. That means one of the things that he implied the parable, he, wanted, he intended the parable to project to you, is that when the kingdom of heaven comes, it would essentially mark the coming of the Messiah. In other words, he's saying that the Messiah will be the deliverer of that kingdom. He's the one who would come and deliver that kingdom. Did you understand what he means there? Now he has shifted focus to the Messiah. Because now he's speaking from, when he says the coming of the kingdom of heaven, then he hears about the groom. So he's now speaking from the groom now. That the coming of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, the rule of God, would also bring with it the Messiah, the bridegroom. And so there, and then we read Matthew, under that, we read Matthew 28, verse 18. Are you ready? And this is what he says. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then, you also, of course, there he talks about disciples after that. Under that, you write John chapter 5, verses 24, 28. There also it says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Messiah. Hallelujah. John 5, 24 to 28. Because they actually is talking about the rapture of the church. Those who will be asleep on the earth. And he said, but those who will hear. He said, and they will hear. But those who will hear, meaning not all will hear. Those who will hear, they will leave, whatever. Because all authority has been given. And then you can also move on and on with other scriptures. But I think those two will underscore the fact that when he says that the coming of the kingdom of God, and now we know, he's essentially saying, the coming of the kingdom of God will bring with it what? Great shock and stun and trembling. Great division and separation. Under which there is Matthew 24, 40, 42, there is Luke 17, 34, 36, and all those divisions between believers and unbelievers, righteous and unrighteous. And then he moves this way, he says great resistance. That's why these days, the nearer the kingdom, the greater the resistance. Even the Bible predicts a greater deception as a preamble, as an introduction to the resistance after the church. And then he goes on to say, we'll bring forth the coming of the Messiah. And then he crowns it, he justifies it by saying, the Messiah indeed is the one who comes to deliver that kingdom. Why? Because all authority in heaven and on the earth has been given to the Messiah. Hallelujah. Can I now move to the next point? Now look at this now. I have now used the bridegroom to exalt forth the Messiah. That actually the coming of the kingdom of God is essentially synonymous with the coming of the Messiah. So now, after taking the Messiah and raising him like this, then I'm now repeating the same thing. I'm now saying, therefore, in this parable, when the Lord said the kingdom of God, remember the title is the kingdom of God. What he meant is that the coming of the kingdom of God 
would bring forth the coming of the reign of the Messiah, and that coming of the reign of the Messiah would also be characterized by deliverance, or in brackets, reward and judgment. Deliverance, or reward in brackets, and judgment. Hallelujah. Or, if you want, preparedness and judgment. Oh, yes. Now he has gone back to say, okay, so when we meant that the kingdom of God, the coming of the kingdom of God will bring forth preparedness and judgment, or reward and judgment, or deliverance and judgment, then we actually meant that the coming of the reign of the Messiah, or the coming of the Christ, would also be two-faced. Because he comes to deliver the kingdom of God. It's not semantics at all. Can I move on? The Lord Jesus... By giving this parable, essentially implied that his return would split the earth into two categories. Under A, A, the faithful. B, the unfaithful. So, at this point I want to stop here and ask a question. Church of Christ, ever since you became born again, have you been faithful? Have you upheld unto the values of faithfulness? Meaning no cheating. Faithfulness means honor and decorum unto your partner, the Lord. Yes. Because the Lord has come to give you a cross. To work with you to bring you into heaven. So if there is a contract, it's between two people. He has finished his part of the bargain. Even legal contracts, name it. But you have to do yours, right? Are you faithful on your segment of the contract, right? Hallelujah. So can we move on then? Moreover, the Lord also intended that through this parable, today's church gets to know that His coming cannot be timed. You cannot say... Um, Ah, well, I think tomorrow by this time he will arrive. Cannot. However, can I share with you something? One time I had finished a meeting at Sigulu Island in Uganda. And it was 24th of December, Christmas Eve. In fact, it was really Eve because of the evening. The sun had just set. Now it's many the little light that is going off, you know. So, as we were coming, I fell asleep. And when I fell asleep, this is what the Lord said by voice from heaven. He came and said it to my ear. And he said, The Messiah can even come back today if you want. So I want you to understand sometimes the interaction between the Lord and his prophet is very different. It's very deep. It's very close, right? He said, I was very shocked. So I woke up. He said, the Messiah can even come today if you want. So when I was shocked and woke up, for me the first thing that hit me was this. I said, wow, this is Christmas Eve. And almost literally everybody is, is in sin. That's the first thing that hit me. Including Christians, at that point they compromise. They are now drinking, small parties, what, any excuses to go into sin. So I wondered... I was like, wow, even now, if I want. But what hit me most is, wow, but if he came now, wow.
he would really cut the whole earth offside. Even churches that and the pastors are in another mode. That's the most sinful time on the earth. And the New Year's Eve. But the Lord was using this parable to say that the coming, His return, or the coming of the reign of God cannot be timed. Never. Another point under that, now we have gone back to the big points, right? We are now on the big points. Another point after that, He says, in other words, the Lord was using this parable of the wise versus the foolish virgins when He said the kingdom of God to imply that his return or the coming of the reign of God, the rule of God, cannot be and will not be in our terms, but it will strictly be in God's terms. Have you understood? Cannot be timed, and now I've split it and I said, in other words, he was also saying, the coming of the Messiah cannot be in our terms. Yeah, I feel, do you feel it? Mm, I feel it. Uh, yeah, I feel we are really ready. Let him just come now. Mm. Do you feel the same? Yeah, at in our terms. He said, no. It will be strictly on his terms, on God's terms. And if you look at the whole thing very well, you find that neither does the son of man also know the time. So surely it is strictly on God's terms. It is in God's timing. We are now learning more about the word and how powerfully tailored to the coming of the kingdom of God. To the midnight hour. So there is no better. Because you, you can preach 10 years, you are still in tune if he has not come. Because you are preaching the coming of the Messiah. The midnight hour. Hallelujah. Matthew 24 verse 42. To underscore that point. Matthew 24 verse 42. All the way to 50. Can I read it? He says, Therefore keep watch because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would have not let his house to be broken into. He's coming to kidnap the church. To steal the church. He says, verse 44, he says, so, you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect. That's why I said the coming of the Messiah becomes a hindrance. That unknownness now is a hindrance for entry. It's the sieve for seeing people who will go, for seeing, for really testing who is faithful. You see that? And verse 45. Who then is the faithful and wise servant whose master has put in charge of the other of the servants in his household to give them their food at the proper time. It will be good for that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. I tell you the truth, he will be put in charge of all his possessions. But suppose that the servant is wicked and says to himself, My master is staying away long. And he then begins to beat up, to beat his fellow servants, and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of the servants will come on the day when he does not expect him, and at an hour that he is not aware of. He will cut him off to pieces and assign him to the place of the hypocrites, where there is the weeping and the gnashing of teeth. Did you understand now? This goes a long way to underscore, to, to emphasize to the church, that the coming 
of the Messiah, his return, Christ's return, the coming of the kingdom of God will strictly be on his terms, in his timing. Hallelujah. Now, no wonder the reason to be ready, to be more ready. Because we don't know, it's not in our control, right? Can we move on then? Still under the topic, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Now, the next topic becomes the wedding banquet. When the Lord said, wedding banquet, and those who were ready with him, went in with him into the wedding banquet. So the title in capital letters, wedding banquet underlined. When he said so, what did he mean? What is the message? What did the Lord mean? You see very clearly that this parable is an extract. It is extracted from the normal daily lives of the Jews. How they used to live. That is where the Lord went in and extracted the parable from. And you know very well that by so doing, He really wanted to connect with them. Connect with them. For example, a little baby born begins to walk. Sometimes, you are compelled to communicate with them in their language, right? If you bought something for ding, ling, 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 like this, right? And they like it. So, you always, when you come to them, you say, baby, ding, ling, ling, ling. And you see the baby laughing and walking towards you slowly. You see that? So, you go down there to reach them to connect, right? You understand? So, are you beginning to understand why this parable was taken from the normal Jewish life? In fact, if you look at all the parables, he essentially took them from the normal life of the Jewish society, the Jewish culture, Jewish community. Hallelujah. Still on this, I'm still building something for you here. Now, when you look deep at that act of the God of heaven, all of a sudden say, uh-uh, let me go down and talk to them in their level. When you look down there, and you see that, then the first thing that you see is the following. You say, wow, the mighty God we know of, the creator of the heavens, the one that created the vast oceans, and then the spirit of God before the light came was moving over the oceans, the vast oceans like that. That mighty God of heaven, the omnipotent God of Israel, the God whose wisdom is infinite, has no end, has no beginning or end. The God that is highly, highly, highly exalted. How could he come down and talk to us at our level? It raises a shame. Then you're like, wow. That means the Lord, when he mentions the wedding banquet in this parable, what he projected, what he wanted, he intended to project forth to the church is the great, great, great disposition of love that he has towards the church. Let me explain that love before we write. Why that love? Why is that a great, great, how is it a great, great disposition of love? 
Why? How? How is it a great, great, great disposition of love that has never been seen, that cannot be understood? How is it? Because by so doing, from his upper chambers of wisdom, and we know in those chambers once in a while, he can just release a little wisdom like this for architecture and new types of buildings are being built on the earth. He releases just a little bit of wisdom like this on medicine and a new drug is discovered. The upper chambers release a little bit like this. New types of aircraft are now being built. Whatever you, you want to call it. Imagine the vastness, the, the infiniteness of the wealth, of the treasures, of the wisdom of God in the upper chambers. He's saying that if he had spoken with us, in those terms, we would not have understood him. That if I had spoken to them strictly on God's terms, the way God speaks, they would not understand me. So in other words, he's saying that the great disposition of love that the word wedding banquet projects throws into the church is because out of the failure, our narrow capacities, understanding capacities, out of our failure or slowness to understand him, he's saying that he was forced, compelled to bow down the heavens and meet us at our level then. And then speak to us about the great esoteric, abstruse if you want, but the great deeper truths of the cross and the salvation of the cross and then of heaven, eternity. So you see, that's why I'm saying from that lofty, he decides to talk to us in terms of what we do every day. Our childishness. That we may understand heaven. And like it and then want to go there. Did you get the overview picture? That even when the cloud of God descended in Kisumu into the church, you can see now the amount of love. Where he had to descend heaven down. In other words, he has to bring heaven on his knees to be able to reach you. Isn't that an amazing act? And that's why, that's the first thing I wanted to understand. Because how can such a holy, lofty, high God come and talk to us in terms of our wedding? Because at that time, the weddings were the most common things in the Jewish culture. And there's also another reason I'm going to share with you here. It was the happiest time in the Jewish life. And he saw that, said, oh, then let me go there and talk to them in terms of that thing they love most. So, later on you hear me say that the Lord had to take condescendence and abuse in his wisdom in order to bow down the heavens on his knees to reach us. It is abusive for such a holy God to come and talk to us in terms of the weddings of the earth. To relate or to connect with us towards the kingdom of God. He says, by referring to the wedding banquet, stroke wedding feast in this parable, by referring to the wedding banquet, brackets or stroke wedding feast in this banquet, and if I were you and I love God so much, and I, I would have said, by referring to royal banquet, royal feast. So there are many ways you can adorn it, right? In this parable, the omnipotent God wanted to demonstrate to mankind the omnipotent God of heaven, 
wanted to demonstrate to mankind his greatest disposition of love towards the church. He wanted, in other words, to show the world how much great love he has for the church. And that love, remember I said it? The bowing down of heaven on his knees. Hallelujah. If you know that this message has touched you, and you know that you are not right with the Lord, you are within the same bracket of those who have committed the sin so grievous, pornography, lasting at women in the streets, the tight trousers that show their bodies in the church, tight skirts that show their bodies in the church, immoral dressing essentially. If you know that this is you, please, repeat this prayer with me. Say, Dear Jesus, I repent today and reject sin. Lead me into righteousness. I receive you as Lord and Savior. Please, protect me. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. If you have said that prayer, behold, a new day has begun with your life. The Bible says you become a new creation before the Lord. Walk in the Holy Spirit. Change your life. Throw out the things that constitute sin, contamination, pollution, in your life. Even as a pastor, it's time to clean up your gospel. Clean up your church. It does not matter whether they try to leave the church. Don't change the message. Continue to preach the message of the kingdom of God. The message of the blood and the cross. Shalom Todarabah.